Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Now, in its sixth month, the war between Russia and Ukraine has entered a critical phase. In recent weeks, the Ukrainians have succeeded in slowing down the rate of Russian shelling, owing in large part to the influx of HIMARS from the United States. This strengthening of Ukraine's position comes as it prepares for a counteroffensive in the South, which is likely to focus on the areas around Kherson and possibly Zaporizhia. At the same time, Russia has made some gains in Eastern Ukraine, now controlling all of Luhansk. Senior Russian officials have also made some comments suggesting that Russia's war aims extend beyond the Donbass, although the necessity of moving Russian forces to the South to address the Ukrainian offensive is likely to slow down Russia's progress in the East. As we look towards a decidedly uncertain future, we're really glad to have back to the podcast Jeff Edmonds and Mike Kaufman to help us make sense of how the war uh, has evolved and what could lie ahead. So welcome back to you both. Thanks for Um, having us. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Mike and Jeff, uh, which is unlikely at this point, um, but Mike is the research program director at the Russia Studies program at CNA as well as an adjunct senior fellow here at CNAS. And Jeff Edmonds is a research scientist with CNA's Russia Studies program and an, also an adjunct senior fellow with us here at CNAS. Okay, over to you guys. Mike, maybe we'll kick it off with you just to give us a little bit of a laydown of where we are, kind of thinking of the arc of the story. Um, where, you know, where, where do you see us? Well, I think the arc is that the Russian military spent a long time uh, in a grinding push to try to take the rest of Luhansk. And that final battle was around the towns of Severed, Donetsk, Lysychansk. Over the past couple of months, it very much became a war of attrition, which is essentially Russian forces going through a cycle of reconnaissance and force against Ukrainian defensive positions, then amassing uh, firepower against them and leveraging the Russian advantage in fires. and then steadily moving up and resetting against the next Ukrainian line. Neither side had the forces for maneuver warfare. Neither side could effectively envelop the opposing force. And when moving up, the the other force could conduct a tactical retreat. The battles have been pretty costly in terms of casualties, and casualties had risen on both sides. So Russian uh, progress towards their goals had been very fitful and incremental in terms of territory they were able to gain and progressed pretty slowly. The Ukrainian military was off in a bad way a couple months ago because they'd run out of artillery, which is not a good place to be when you're in an artillery war, right? And they'd run out of ammunition. So they were coming out of this big capability trench in acquiring Western artillery systems and the ammunition forum. I think that's progressed reasonably well in the last uh, couple months. And now they have uh, some parity of capability, still not the same as uh, the kind of artillery that Russia is able to bring to bear. But with HIMARS in play, they are able to force Russia to be far less efficient in supplying their artillery force, right? And that's creating a lot of problems for the Russian military in sustaining effective fire. So uh, where are we today? The Russian military is still trying to take the rest of Donbass, and they're slowly not particularly successfully pushing against the next Ukrainian defensive line around Slavyansk Kermatorsk. They've shifted some of their efforts further south, uh, trying to push from Donetsk as well, which is another front uh, in the region that hasn't gotten much attention over the last couple of months. 
And they've pulled a lot of units off of that line and redeployed them through Crimea into Kherson and Zaporizhia in anticipation of a major Ukrainian counteroffensive. Throughout this whole time, Ukraine had been conducting limited counterattacks at Kharkov, by Zoom, and especially in the strip of Kherson, west of the Dnieper River, where Russian forces were kind of in a precarious position trying to hold this large buffer. You know, and the only thing connecting them to the rest of the Russian military is, is uh, a couple of bridges across the river, right? And, and Ukraine has been able to use HIMARS to essentially degrade the ability of Russia to resupply those forces, right? But all that being said, the, the timing of a potential Ukraine offensive isn't clear. The potential location of it isn't clear either, although there's tremendous speculation in the media, right? And I think I think there's a lot of expectations being levied to it, which maybe are worth discussing. Uh, but but that's about I, I think that catches us up reasonably well. Yeah, Jim, I know you you can toss in a question too. But Jeff, over to you. To anything to add? Um, but also, I mean, I you know I think a lot of people have placed great hope on the introduction of the HIMARS and noted the decline in shelling. Um, I think also a decline in Ukrainian casualties. Um, I don't know if you want to talk in anything that you that you want to add to what Mike said about um, whether or not we should continue those, consider those as a game changer. Um, yeah. And, I, and, and and then Jim, do you want to toss in? Do you want to lob in one? Um. Yeah, I'll I'll lob in uh, my high okay. Mars after you're uh, finished. Okay. So well, I think high Mars is definitely useful, and we should consider you know continuing the supply of of, of high Mars and the various types of ammunition they use, <clears throat> I'd, I'd stay away from like the game changer kind of description of HIMARS. It is certainly very useful. Um, but again, it's game changing sounds more like a decisive point in a, in a war or a battle. And that's not what we're going to see here. It helps, uh, it contributes to the attrition of Russian ammunition, makes it harder to supply logistics because you have to spread things out. Um, you end up losing more commanders because you can hit C2 nodes. And over time, that makes a big difference. But I, I usually stay away from the game changer kind of description of it. And as far as what, what Mike was, I totally agree with Mike. I think it's so interesting. There's a whole nother line of, you know, when you think about how long it took the Russians to take Severodonetsk, there's a whole nother line of cities running from Slavyansk down to Zhezhensk that is, you know, going to be incredibly hard for the Russians to, to deal with. And I think the real, you know, term here on both sides is incremental. Everything has been incredibly incremental quite slow. Um, and so I don't think we're going to see any kind of, you know, whether or not there's a Ukrainian counteroffensive, you're not going to see like a route. No one's going to route their adversary in front of them and have them, you know, break through enemy lines in some kind of dramatic fashion. Well, uh, thanks so much for that. Uh, and, uh, and Jeff, kind of teeing off what you just talked about, uh, and also what Mike was talking about, what does a, a Ukraine counteroffensive even look like? You know, you were just saying we're not going to see the opposition being routed. Um, uh, Mike also talked about you didn't see a lot of a lot of you know the, the forces on both sides aren't at such a scale that you can have a large maneuver force uh, enveloping and doing that kind of thing. So those of our listeners who, when you, they hear the term uh, counteroffensive by Ukraine, they're thinking tanks and aircraft and this big move afoot. Uh, but actually, as you said, it's we're looking at incremental. So what does an incremental counteroffensive look like? Can I just, I'm sorry, like just to piggyback on that too, because it's the important, that's where we, we want to go next is kind of talking about Ukraine's prospects in, in said counteroffensive. But 
I think I feel like the way that a lot of people, at least here in D.C., are kind of thinking about it is that this is really a critical point of the war, right? Like this is going to be uh, a really important bellwether, possibly, of the way that things um, unfold after the counteroffensive. And so there's been a lot of emphasis being placed on what the United States in particular, but also European allies could provide in order to increase Ukraine's prospects of success. So as you're thinking about what a, a, a Ukrainian counteroffensive look like, if you could also talk about what would be most important um, to provide to the Ukrainians at this point in time that would help them and set them up to be in as strong a position as possible. It's so hard to predict how the, what this would look like. It's not even clear at this point the Ukrainians are going to, to try to conduct a large counteroffensive. Um, they may have been, you know, there, this may be a good example of inter-war deterrence. As Mike said, you know, the Russians have deployed a lot of units to the south and they may have missed um, an opportunity there. I mean, there's a timing aspect to offensive operations that you don't have in the defense. In the defense, you just continue to prepare, right? Where in, in the offense, what makes it more complicated is this idea of synchrony, you know, synchronizing different units and timing them and, and attacking them in various ways. But I think if you if if we do see a counteroffensive, I think what you would see is an intensification of those of, of the pushing that, that we saw earlier around Kyrgyzstan, perhaps. Um, but again, you're not going to see, you know, to Mike's point, you're not going to see any kind of great operational art where you've got large maneuver formations that are synchronized and you're breaking through lines. The other point that Mike has made a number of times that I agree with, there's a lot of geography here, right? This is a large territory where massive armies have fought in the past. Um, and you just don't have those force sizes right now. So I I think, you know, and I, I'm probably guilty of this too. I think we've kind of built up this expectation of a counteroffensive that's going to really dramatically possibly change things. I mean, I think it's possible the Ukrainians could, could make some gains here. But again, you know, I think we need to manage expectations in that I don't think this is going to be a super dynamic breakthrough kind of event. Mike, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I'll add to, to just good comments that, one, it's definitely very hard to speculate in this area. Offensive operations are much harder than defensive operations. Uh, the main thing missing in the Ukrainian military right now would probably be actual training of the force, the quality itself. Uh, things like protected mobility and good integration uh, between different combined arms. And the Ukrainian military has had far less training and far less experience in offensive operations than it has in defensive operations. It actually has a lot of experience in defensive operations, quite good at them. But offensive operations are somewhat of a different story, and it requires a lot of pieces working together. So there's a bit of a catch-22. I mean, if the offensive is one mostly based on uh, forces moving up steadily, leveraging artillery firepower, then it's going to be a long creeping slog, and there'll be a lot of opportunities for the Russian military to conduct tactical withdrawals, to retreat into pre-position and pre-sighted artillery, and to inflict a lot of casualties. And I've seen that outside of, in Ukrainian counterattacks, outside of Kharkiv and in other areas. So I think folks definitely need to have their expectations somewhat um, uh, mitigated or being or realistic regarding to what this could look like. Uh, alternatively, in the areas like Kherson, there's a real logistical problem for the Russian military. There's only a couple of bridges connecting that region to the rest of the Kherson province. And the Indian River runs through it, so there's only some bridges interconnecting that region as well. So Ukraine has the ability to deny the Russian military maneuver and resupply to an extent. But there's, you know, there's a major regional capital at the at the end of that city, which in itself could be a rather challenging fight. 
No, of course, focusing on Kherson, it doesn't mean that that's where Ukraine is going to attack. They're just a general assumption in, uh, in the media. Uh, that said, we should discuss what is the reason for an offensive to begin with. On the one hand, I think there's a military perception that right now the Russian, the Russian armed forces are somewhat exhausted, particularly in the last couple of weeks, and they're trying to adjust to the presence of HIMARS on the battlefield, which is going to be very difficult for them and uh, is going to substantially reduce their efficiency in sustaining artillery fire. And so Ukraine may have a kind of window of opportunity in the coming months before the Russian military is better able to fix its manpower pipeline and other, other, other problems. Uh, I think there's also a strong sense that uh, you know, Ukraine has been counterattacking here and there, but has largely been fighting a defense in depth war. And it needs to go on the offensive to demonstrate that it has the, the prospect of retaking significant amounts of territory, right, as it goes into the winter. And that might be, uh, Jim and Andrea, a, a question for you to pick up on, which is I think there are probably genuine concerns about what does Western support for Ukraine look like going into this winter, understanding there could be a lot of challenges there, especially if um, the allies and partners on which Ukraine depends don't don't perceive that they're great military prospects like for for Ukrainian success in this war. Maybe they don't feel that Ukraine can retake territory. If that's the case, if they don't believe that that's true, I can understand why Ukrainians might be worried and feeling that they have to demonstrate that they can actually uh, liberate territory. You know, I that's really interesting. I, and I've been thinking the same thing. And it reminds me, and I don't want to stretch this point too far, but I mean, it reminds me of the pressures that Lincoln was under to show that he could actually uh, defeat Robert E. Lee, uh, because uh, whether it was the North or it was the uh, you know Great Britain or other nations watching the North, uh, you know the North was being defeated, and there was a lot of pressure on Lincoln to show that in fact uh, they could win. And so there was, as you know, a couple of very important battles that were fought. The North won, and he was able to prove to everyone that in fact Lee could be defeated. And it was morale for the Northern troops, and it was morale. Uh, and support uh, from the the north and from international uh, nations too. So I think it's it's I think a lot of that I, I've been thinking this a lot of that is uh, going to be crucial for support coming from the United States and from Europe to Ukraine because if if Ukraine was constantly losing, constantly retreating, showing that there wasn't much prospect, then there's going to be a lot of nations that say, why should I provide uh, really uh, scarce resources from my arsenal uh, to Ukraine when they're just going to be destroyed and I'm going to have to replace it at a very high price tag? And I think that would go for the U.S. too. There would be opposition in Congress among Republicans who would be saying, look, uh, we're just throwing money down a rat hole. And so I think particularly the successes that we've seen on the videos, at least, of HIMARS uh, and, um, you know, th those uh, rocket propelled systems um, that showed that they were really paying off and the Ukrainians knew how to use it well. Uh, they were using it and really having an impact that has really shored up support in the Congress and kept these assistance package packages going in. So I think that that point, Mike, is is uh, is really a good one. They need to show that they are capable of going on the offense, even though it's not going to be the stereotypical thing that a lot of people think of when they think of, uh, you know, forces moving forward and pushing back the opposition. 
Yeah, I want to pick up on something you said too, Mike. So kind of some of the factors perhaps driving the urgency of a counteroffensive, you know, before we get into the dead of the winter. The other thing you mentioned when you were just talking is, you know, the Ukrainians might perceive that there's a window of opportunity um, before Russia can fix its manpower pipeline. And I think you've talked a lot that manpower has been one of the key limiting factors kind of on the Russian side. Um, can Russia fix its it's manpower problem. I mean, we know we know that Putin doesn't want to mobilize forces. He's been loath to do that. We see all of these ad hoc efforts that they're making in order to get people quickly um, into the battle. Uh, just talk a little bit about whether or not you think the Russians can fix this problem and whether kind of what they're able to cobble together would be enough for them to kind of turn the momentum in their direction. I mean, look, Russia has a strong advantage in artillery and ammunition. And given time to rest, they can build more and more volunteer contracted battalions. They have a problem with long-term force degradation in that they don't have the officers and enlisted professionals to keep training and manning these units. And they have to rely on older equipment. Well, that happens to a lot of militaries once they've gone through a massive phase of attrition, you lose often a lot of your best people and a lot of your best kit. But you, you have to understand that Russia has a lot of latent power. Like they can keep generating forces. Ukrainians actually appreciate this, I think, a lot better than many of the Western commentators I've seen. They understand that in a prolonged war of attrition, Ukrainian success depends on external support. Western weapons, Western ammunition, and to the extent that's possible, Western-provided training. Okay, Because otherwise, Ukraine can be stuck in a grinding cycle where they have to pull people out of training early and throw them at the line right, when the rate of attrition is high, and then you start basically getting personnel with fewer and fewer weeks or days in actual training, because you're mobilizing them and they don't have enough time before you have to send them as, as bodies to man the line. So uh, with all that in mind, I think there's a, there's a kind of maybe somewhat erroneous perception that there's uh, a kind of midpoint in the conflict that we reach, and I've argued myself, we could be approaching an inflection point, but it's all contingent. It's not clear how it's going to turn out. And that Ukrainian military is going to get better and the Russian military is going to keep getting worse. Right. That's not necessarily true, though. I think actually Ukrainians appreciate that if they don't take this window now, there are real questions about the extent of Western military support they can expect long term. It's neither infinite in terms of amounts, nor is it uh, uh, time unlimited, right, that Ukraine can expect kind of an, an endless amount of support that translates into military aid. And also, that if Russia is given time to rest, they will gather additional forces. They will pull and repair more equipment out of storage. They will build more units. They will find institutional solutions to the piecemeal solutions they pursued. And they are trying to do that. And they will have more units on the line. And, and they may not be more successful. Let's put that aside will be that much harder to claw back territory from their control. That's the real issue. There's going to be far more Russian forces de defending it, right? And so you've, if you don't take the window, you potentially extended the timeline for the war dramatically. Right? I think that might be, I, I'm just hypothesizing, right? I, I don't, I myself obviously don't know what the Ukrainian planning is. It's just, um, it's, I also see strong political motivations as well. And when uh, local imperatives are a driving factor, they will, in my view, always super, almost always supersede the military considerations. 
Yeah, I think there is this perception on the manpower that like that Russia has these problems now that they're doing these piecemeal solutions and that they won't be able to plug it in the future. So I think that's an important and and what you're saying is important kind of nuance or adding information to to that story. Um, Jeff, I want to ask you about um, the potential for referenda to be held. And I think it was actually news out today where they announced that Zaporizhia would hold a referendum. And I'm not sure if that's right. I just kind of saw that on Twitter before we jumped on the podcast. But talk a little bit about what you think that would mean um, in the course of this war. So if Russia, as they have, as has been suggested, holds referenda sooner rather than later in both in Zaporizhia and or Kherson, then kind of what what does that mean for the course of the war? And I guess there's that question about, you know, we would all know that said referenda would be a sham, but if it passes and these countries actually re, you know, quote unquote, reintegrate into Russia, does that, what does that mean for Ukrainian prospects to take that territory back? Like, does the Kremlin then see that territory as Russian territory? And would there be a different type of response to future Ukrainian efforts to retake territory once it's been, you know, quote unquote, returned to to the Kremlin? Yes, let me unpack that a little bit. Excuse me. I mean, yeah, I I agree. They're going to be sham. They're not going to be recognized by uh, really anybody um, except the Russians themselves. But I think it, you know, to your broader question as to what it means for the conflict, I think when, you know, it's it's not clear that either side can achieve their ultimate strategic goals. And so I think that naturally drags someone intellectually into this area of a frozen conflict. And I think this is, is has become quite different than other frozen conflicts. Again, to Mike's point, it's, you know, impossible to predict how this thing is going to turn out, but I think it's useful to look at some other examples. I don't, it's not as if, you know, in a typical frozen conflict dealing with Russia, where you have a breakaway region that's trying to declare its own sovereignty, that becomes a, you know, problem and weakens the country that it's breaking away from. That's not what this is anymore. The Russians want this to be Russian land. And so I don't see this being a no peace, no war kind of frozen conflict. I see them fighting over this for, for you know, quite some time, a very imperfect model would be something closer to Kashmir than, you know, the Indian-Pakistan conflict in in Kashmir, rather than like Moldova or Georgia, I think, um, where you, you know, this this fight continues on. It may go through, you know, ebbs and flows, but I think it continues on for some, for quite some time. And I, you know, also agree with, with, with Mike in that, you know, Russia does have a lot of latent power that I think it can generate over time. Um, And so I just don't see this. I, I think this idea of a frozen conflict and an agreement is in some, you know, circulates in DC a bit among those that think we should be pushing the Ukrainians for a deal, um, possibly thinking, you know, back to the kinds of deals, you know, that that led to the the Minsk agreements. I don't think any either side wants that. And so I just don't think that's a real possibility at this point at all. It's going to become a, a border war, which is in a real sense, very different than a frozen conflict, because to your point, you know, when the Ukrainians, if the Ukrainians do counterattack from the Russians' perspective, from their argumentative side, that's Ukraine attacking Russia now. So it's, and you go back and forth on that. So I think it's 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 quite different. Mike, do you want to weigh in on that? And then I guess, I mean, it brings us to this question, which I want to ask in a little bit, which is about like potential for escalation, something that we've already talked about before, but just to check in with you. But say, say these territories are illegally 
annexed and returned to Russia, then does that affect the Kremlin's calculus about how it responds to a counterattack? I mean, like thinking of nuclear doctrine, one of the you know, the ideas is an attack on Russia, right? And so would 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 these territories then fall under that kind of umbrella and and raise the risk of the of escalation? That's a great question. It's kind of a concerning gray area, isn't it? Uh, especially if we don't recognize them as being part of Russia, then how should we be thinking about potential escalation? And to be clear, Russia's taking on a great risk considering annexation of these areas, especially Kherson, because they may not be able to hold it, right? And I suspect that they put off uh, a lot of these political machinations maybe into September because they weren't sure how the war would evolve, right? But now that they're heading into it, it's actually one of the probably driving factors overall in the planning and discussion around this, trying to prevent Russian political consolidation and control of these areas. But what it means for escalation, I don't know. I don't know how, we, how we're going to treat it either. You know, a lot of things at the end of the day are, to an extent, not to be glib, they are what you make of them, right? So if Russia puts out a declaratory policy that an attack of a certain kind on these territories constitutes an attack on Russia, well, Russia's already at war with Ukraine, right? The United States, from what I can discern, has no intention of directly intervening in this conflict, right? So it may not that may not be a principal factor. But it's also a question of how we will treat them, right? If we declare that we don't consider these territories to be part of Russia and we will not consider an attack on them to be an attack on Russia, these, these, are, um, uh, these are ultimately questions of, of policy. But I, I will say this, it would probably be naive and foolish to imagine that Russian annexation will not have ramifications for how the United States and NATO think about these territories moving forward from the standpoint of escalation, not from the standpoint of kind of political recognition or anything like that, but from the standpoint of escalation. Annexation of Crimea very much had that effect, right? So if you look at, at contemporary history, I think, I think it would be foolish to believe that it would have no implications and no impact. Jim, I know you, I think you had a question, but if I could do one quick follow-up, which is on this question of the potential for escalation, I think there have been some criticisms of the Biden administration that they've been overly risk averse in what they've been willing to do, whether it's the provision of weapons or kind of other calculations that they that that they've made. But it's that idea that maybe the Biden administration has overestimated the risk of escalation to the detriment of the quality of support for. The Ukrainians. So I just want to ask both of you, like, is that fair? Do you think the Biden administration has has overestimated the potential for escalation? I I don't. I mean, I I'm actually surprised at, at the the links we've gone through to support Ukraine. So I, I think the I don't think they've actually been very risk. I mean, they've been risk averse to a degree. There was the talk about, you know, what type of, of ammunition are you going to supply? Can they hit Russia? But I mean, we've given them the, these high-end artillery pieces. We've sanctioned Russia more than anybody ever thought we would. And so I, I just think that I think that those criticisms are a little bit hyperbolic. I think that um, there's been a due amount of, 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 you know, understanding risk. And they've talked about that. And I don't, I don't know if they've been perfect or anything, but I, I think that it's 
it's a bit of an unfair criticism to say that they've been too risk averse considering the amount of support we've actually given Ukraine. Mike, I don't know if you want to weigh in on that or I mean, just in a, in more general terms, you know, we have this group here has recently talked about the risks of escalation. Do you think that they've changed? Do you think that, you know, somehow we've passed some sort of critical juncture and that the risks of escalation have declined over time? Or do you think that the risk of escalation is the same as it's been kind of throughout the conflict? So here are my thoughts. First, just generally, this will be a bit of a quip. Uh, in my limited time in government, I found that there's nothing easier for people who are not in government actually trying to make these things happen than to criticize and throw rocks. Because if they were there, they would have done it better and faster. And that happens uh, throughout, right? Uh, second, you know, escalation management might not have been one of the principal constraints. It could have been all sorts of organizational, logistical, training, or policy issues, right? Like the notion that the United States can just grab weapons bring them to a conflict zone, instantly transfer them to another country that's never used them before, and get all that sorted very quickly is just erroneous. These, these things take, take time. And uh, they take consultation, they take coordination with partners and allies, there are logistical constraints, what have you. All right. Now, also those explanations aside, escalation management was a very important imperative early on in the war. It was clear that the Russians were shocked and the mental state of their decision-making was very unclear going to March and April, and they were making a lot of threats. Now, there are people who are very cavalier and dismissive of those threats. All those people were outside of government because it wasn't their responsibility to deal with the consequences, right? So uh, good on them. Uh, now, I think that risk of escalation had declined. I think Russians may believe that there's some informal understanding between us and them, at the very least, that the United States and NATO are unlikely to intervene, right? And that the risk of a direct uh, Russia-NATO uh, confrontation are actually now lower. I, I don't know, I'm just speculating here. So my view of it is that managing escalation was an important priority early on in this war. Since then, I think we've understood that we can do it, that we've understood how to do it, and moving forward, we can now provide or have been providing a lot of the weapons that have been asked for. It's actually very, it's actually unclear what exactly this Ukraine has asked for that hasn't been provided yet. You know, besides, I don't know, you could, I guess you could pull ATACMs out of the drawer, but I don't, I don't think it necessarily would make uh, that tremendous of a difference. So long story short, from my point of view, I very much agree with Jeff. We have provided a lot of the weapons and the capabilities and we continue to do so, right? Maybe not on a timeline that folks have wanted, but yeah, you know, not to be, not to be a bit dismissive, but the people who want to criticize, is there any timeline that would have satisfied them? Like, let's be honest. To what, to what extent are those are those really good faith criticisms from uh, from outside? I, I at least uh, understand that I'm not in government. I know how hard these and how difficult these things are and the things you have to balance and manage. So I, I, I'm far less critical, at least from where I sit. Uh, if I could jump in, Andrea. <laughs> no, no, no. It's been this been this been good. Um, just to, just to ask you all to think in the medium term, if, you know, the fighting season, I would assume, will end, uh, well, the fighting season will be dramatically impacted by winter in the January-February time frame. And that's a question in and of itself is, so what does the fighting season really look like in that part of Ukraine? But, but that aside, um, uh, also, there's, you know, and we've talked about this a little bit, this idea that at some point, maybe in the medium term, the Russians might want to come in and, and uh, and try to lock in some type of uh, 
well, I, you know, this is what's out there, but, you know, that there, this idea of a frozen conflict, maybe the Russians might want to try to to come up with some type of talks that could lead to a frozen conflict. That's not, I agree with you guys, that's not where I am, but but I'm, I'm, I'm bringing up these two scenarios to ask, what do you think the Russians, before they would do that, before the, uh, the, 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 before the winter really impacts the fighting season, and if there were to be some type of diplomatic move that the Russians might make to lock in some type of frozen conflict, what would the Russians want to occupy or to take before the winter sets in or before some type of frozen conflict type of thing so if so is it is it odessa is that is, do you think they would they would go for odessa would it would it be something else that they feel is on their must do list before before the winter really socks them in or before they might make some type of play uh, feeling that they have a stronger hand now because they were able to take this piece of, of real estate or they were able to do something. Is there something like that or really is there not? I know that's a complicated question. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, I'll take it briefly. So I think it is their goal to take Donbass by the end of the year. I'm not sure that they, that they can. Just looking at the rate of progress, a lot of the hardest battles are yet ahead of them and the rate of advance had really slowed down. I think that they have a dream of a secondary campaign along the Ukrainian coast to take a dust down the line, maybe next year, maybe further off. Uh, in my view, any proposition for negotiation by them is likely just bait to, uh, to buy time for themselves. And it's very unlikely that they're interested in any kind of settlement with Ukraine, because as long as they have a foothold west of the river, they can always hold on to the dream of a follow-on campaign. And even if you do get a ceasefire, you're probably just going to get another war after that with both sides rearmed. That's kind of my pessimistic view of it. I don't believe that Russia is interested in making any kind of deal with Ukraine. Part of the reason for that is they think they're winning. They think they're going to grind the Ukrainian military down and that the West will eventually run out of political will to support Ukraine, if not this winter, then next year. And, and until they're disabused of those uh, perceptions of those notions, you're not going to get a different policy for them. Every overture from a person who, from uh, an aggressor side that believes they are winning, is just bait. Okay, that's all it is. All right, you're not going to get a serious negotiation from the side that thinks it is winning. Right, and, and you just have to assume that. I don't know, Jeff. I don't know if you have if you think differently on this, but yeah, no, I I, I totally agree with you. That's why you know. There's that, you know, there's, there are those that are calling for negotiations or we have to talk to the Russians. We've got to get the Ukrainians to sit down because of either risk aversion or, or, or what have you. And I just don't think they're reading the room. Um, I think that, you know, I, I don't think the Russians want agreement and I don't, I don't think um, the Ukrainians want agreement. I just don't, I, I just don't think there's a there there. I just not at this point anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's just as important you're saying from the Russian side, but as you're as you're hinting from the Ukrainian side either, right? I mean, I I think that they see that the HIMARS have breathed some life into what they're doing, but also looking at the public polling from the Ukrainian side, I don't even know what it was, but an abysmally low number of Ukrainians would be willing to concede territory, right? So there's like a definite it, it's not happening from either side. Uh, well, and no, I, I think yeah, from the Ukrainian perspective, I mean, they're coming off the high of the you know transition from phase one to phase two, if you want to call it that. Um, the high Mars, and while they've been giving up territory incrementally, you could argue, um, I th think that they still very much see prospects for cost. success in this. So, 
Yeah. It really is this border, a border war scenario. Kashmir is a really good example. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I agree. And this thing going on for a long time. And again, that that's going to be pressure on the West. Uh, can we supply Ukraine uh, for a long term border war? Is that going to be something that we're all going to do? And there's one other thing, too. I think we're going to reach a point here in the U.S. where we're going to turn to the allies and say, you guys are going to have to do more to provide uh, either funding to buy high Mars uh, ammo or, you know, but uh, I think there's going to come a time when uh, we're, we're going to turn on the allies and say, let's, let's, you guys are going to really have to step up. Either you provide equipment or, or, and you, I heard that, I heard that Sweden was in fact going to start doing training, which is great. That was a bit of a surprise, but, uh, but anyway, I think the allies, if we're going to survive a long-term border war type of situation and Ukraine will continually need support, the allies are going to have to do more. Well, one, maybe one kind of line of conversation to bring us to the end is, I mean, Jim, maybe that comes sooner rather than later as tensions uh, with Taiwan, you know, between China, between the U.S. and China heat up over Taiwan. And I wonder, like, I don't know the extent to which you both have thought about this, but how concerned are you that um, heightened tensions with China will be another factor that might slow what the United States is willing to do for Ukraine. Like, like in thinking of the bureaucracy and the, 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 the pull factor for those who are saying, see, we told you that China's the long-term more strategic challenge. We can't send five more HIMARS to Ukraine into Europe because that's, you know, that means that's five HIMARS we don't have in the ready if we have a conflict in the Indo-Pacific. So I, I, I don't know. I just wonder, you know, there's lots of kind of factors that could affect the trajectory of this? And to what extent are you worried that a Taiwan contingency could be a big disruption? I mean, it's a very significant development. First, you have all the people that wanted to focus this administration and U.S. government uh, on China to begin with that probably been pretty I told you so. Yeah, yeah pretty or, frustrated yeah. over the course of uh, this past year with all the attention sucked up by the Russian buildup and then the actual war in Europe. But I think it just should be. But as you know, as a Russian military analyst, I understand that that for me, uh, this has always been a focus of priority. Whereas for a lot of people with China, and yes, they get to say, I "Told you so." This is very significant now. But secondarily, yes, you're quite right. There will be folks arguing over force requirements or global reserves or uh, capabilities allocated to Indo-PACOM, and the people who are basically out there saying, oh, we should send plug in X number of HIMARS that they just that they just made up or X number of ammunition, right? Well, there are major force planning requirements and contingencies that the Department of Defense has to work uh, with, right? And they involve scenarios with China and those people are gonna probably work very hard to defend what's allocated to them in their theater. And at this stage, they're probably gonna say, you know what? The, you know, the Russian war with Ukraine, it, it's a major challenge, but it seems we're maybe over the cusp of the main Russian offensive, and the focus should switch back to a conversation on Taiwan and a potential U.S.-China confrontation over Taiwan, so on and so forth. I'm not saying I heard that. I'm just saying, look, I've been in this town long enough that I can begin to see where the trajectory of the conversation can take, and so have all of you. So you can you can definitely see it emerge this fall, and um, and I, I think your points will take Andrew. Okay, final question. Just um, what are you guys going to be watching, like in the coming couple next couple of weeks? What are the key things that you are paying most attention to and trying to understand the trajectory? 
couple of months, next couple of months, in fact. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's at the end of the year, you, you mentioned uh, taking the Dombas mic uh, fully, but, but walking us towards that goal, what should we be watching for? I mean, I think to me, the big question is, uh, first, whether or not there's going to be a Ukrainian counteroffensive. And I think we'll know it when we see it, right? Uh, second, where? Third, will Russia be really stretched thin, or will they continue trying to press Ukrainian lines to the Donbass? They're still trying, right? They're just not being very, very successful. Uh, then there's big questions about the, the winter and what happens with a potential energy crisis in Europe. These, these are things of interest to me. But I'll be honest, I'm kind of living, living through uh, this war day by day and sort of watching the developments. Um, it's very hard to recognize turning points when you're in the midst of a conflict. These things are always best in hindsight, right? And whenever you're in a war, you don't know if you're near the beginning or the middle or the end of it. Um, you know, I, I, was, I was making a cynical joke back in July that everybody here was declaring a Russian operational pause because they booked vacation in August and they really needed one. Right. And that wasn't me. And I was here saying there wasn't operate. I didn't see a serious operational pause because I'm still here tracking the work. So that's, you know, that's been my life. Buzz when Andrea went on a three week vacation. So I think there's some truth to that. She yeah. was telling CNN, she was telling CNN she really there's nothing to see here, nothing to see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I'll always be on the other end of the telephone. So just call me and in, in Greece if there's something I need to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I agree with Mike. I mean, just the level it, it is. Because there are no large events, really, it, it, it is in some ways difficult to track because it is very, like I've said a couple of times, very incremental. So I think, you know, whether or not there's going to be this counteroffensive um, levels of violence and where those levels of violence change um, day to day and, and week to week, I think is what, you know, I, I try to focus on. Um, totally agree with Mike. Winter is going to be very interesting with energy and how that shakes support or doesn't or how people rally and, and it's hard to predict i mean i wouldn't have predicted the level of solidarity that europeans have had on this issue that doesn't mean that that just continues endlessly so it'll be really interesting to see how that how that turns out all right well um i think this was really excellent it was really helpful just to check back in and get an update of where we are um, i'm sure we'll do it again in the next couple of weeks but as, as always we really appreciate both of you um, and everything that you add to to how we understand what's happening um in this war so thanks and i'm we will be talking soon yep thank you so much great to see you all thanks for having us back Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.